This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In the first perspective on today's program, I want to think with you about a Thanksgiving hymn and put it in historical perspective. This is Thanksgiving weekend, and it is appropriate in this edition of Issues in Perspective to focus on Thanksgiving, at least for a short time. To that end, I want to concentrate on the Thanksgiving hymn, We Gather Together. It just offers an instructive history into the traditional hymn, and that's the focus I want to give. We Gathered Together is actually a hymn of Dutch origin and speaks of religious persecution that predates the first Thanksgiving. The melody can be traced back to 1597. We Gathered Together began as a folk song, but was transformed into a hymn dealing with overcoming religious persecution on the 25th of January, 1597. That was the date of the Battle of Turnout, in the, which Prince Maurice of Orange defeated the Spanish occupiers of a town in what is now the Netherlands. At that point in history, the Dutch Protestants, who were prohibited from worshiping under the Spanish King Philip II, celebrated the victory by borrowing the familiar folk melody and giving it new words. We gathered together connoted a heretofore forbidden act, Dutch Protestants gathering together for worship. It first appeared in print in a 1626 collection of Dutch patriotic songs. Well, how did this Dutch patriotic song get from a Dutch songbook to the American hymn book. Dutch settlers brought the hymn with them to the New World as early as the 1620s, we believe. Dutch Calvinists, like most Calvinists, rarely sang anything in their church services. That was not directly from the Bible. For example, they normally put the Psalms to music, and if you've ever seen a Dutch Reformed hymn book, you see many, many, many psalms put to music. But in 1937, the Christian Reformed Church made the controversial decision to permit hymns to be sung at church, and We Gathered Together was chosen as the opening hymn of this new hymnal in 1937. Furthermore, Theodore Baker, an American scholar studying in Leipzig, where the choir master had published an arrangement of the hymn, translated it into English in 1894 as a thanksgiving prayer to be sung by a choir. According to the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada, which maintains a database of popular hymns, We Gathered Together first appeared in an American hymnal in 1903. And over the next three decades, it appeared in an assortment of hymnals in the Northeast and Midwest and in school songbooks. In 1935, it was added to the National Hymnal of the Methodist Episcopal Church, then the largest denomination in the United States. So the Dutch added it in 37, the Methodists in 35, and it started appearing all over the United States. In one of the most memorable of Thanksgiving hymns, we gathered together 
fits with the American religious culture, for it fits with the fitting and uplifting conclusion, O Lord, make us free. This Thanksgiving weekend, I trust that you will find time to give thanks to Almighty God for his blessings and for the fact that we live in the United States of America. It is a nation with severe problems and challenges, but it is a nation that continues to be a beacon of freedom to the world. The freedom of which this hymn we gather together speaks could mean political freedom with all its rights and liberties that attend to that. But it also can mean spiritual freedom. That is freedom from the bondage to sin and freedom to serve the risen Lord. So this Thanksgiving weekend, I echo that refrain in the hymn we gather together. O Lord, make us free, free from bondage to sin, but also the political freedom with all the rights and liberties that go with it. May they be preserved in this desperately needy country called the United States of America. God has shined his grace. He has shined it brightly. It's poured forth in our country. But so often in these recent decades, we have turned our back on God. May we embrace again the freedom that we can find only in Jesus Christ. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to return to something I discussed several weeks ago. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Corporation, who recently died of the result of pancreatic cancer, and his love for Zen Buddhism. With the death of the Apple founder, Steve Jobs, and the subsequent release of the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, we've gained a new insight into the mind and heart of Apple CEO Stephen Jobs. A few thoughts about this remarkable man, and especially his penchant for Zen Buddhism. First of all, there is no question that Steve Jobs and Walter Isaacson's biography shows this, was a man of much inner turmoil and unsettledness. For example, during the research, he told Walter Isaacson, quote, For most of my life, I felt there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. Close that quote. Much of his early childhood as a boy was spent searching for that unseen something. Isaacson, in his biography, relates that when Steve Jobs was 13 years old, he was talking with a Lutheran pastor, and he brought up the subject of human suffering and starving children. That Lutheran pastor did not give him satisfactory answers, so he stopped attending church. Steve Jobs, even in those early teen years, turned to Eastern mysticism, to meditation, even he admits to using psychedelic drugs. But he also began to study Zen Buddhism. He especially focused on the lectures of a Zen master from America named Shurukyu Suzuki. In 1974, Jobs even traveled to India in search of a guru that could serve him personally. According to an article by Daniel Burke in USA Today, Upon returning from India, he found one of his gurus, 
that would serve him in his hometown in Los Altos, California, who was a Suzuki disciple. His name was Kobun, and I will refer to him in that way through this particular perspective. He opened a Zen center, the Haiku Zen Center there in Los Altos, California. Jobs and this Zen master quickly forged a bond, discussing life and Zen Buddhism during their midnight walks. He says, I ended up spending as much time with him as I could. Zen has been a deep influence in my life ever since, Steve Jobs declared. In 1976, Steve Jobs ended his regular practice of Zen Buddhism because his Apple work in that new corporation was consuming more and more of his time. Nonetheless, his contact with Kobun, the Zen master, continued. Indeed, Kobun officiated at his wedding in 1991. When Kobun died of a drowning accident in 2002, Evidence indicates that Steve Jobs took his death very, very hard. According to Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, Jobs believed that Zen meditation taught him to concentrate and ignore distractions. He also learned to trust intuition and curiosity, what Buddhists call beginner's mind, over analysis and preconceptions. Most visibly, the corporation Apple, Apple's sleek, minimalist design, reveals Jobs' zeal for Zen aesthetics, the uncluttered lines of calligraphy, Japanese gardens, all of this according to Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs. Furthermore, to boost creativity among Apple's engineers, Jobs began offering meditation classes at the corporation in 1999. However, and this is clear in Isaacson's biography. Steve Jobs was still known as a man who was ruthless, often mean, quite manipulative, and certainly egocentric. Unfortunately, Zen training that he had gone through as a younger man never quite produced in him a Zen-like calm of inner security, and that is part of his legacy. Isaacson quotes one of the meditation teachers in California by stating, quote, he got to the aesthetic part of Zen, the relationship between lines and spaces, the quality and craftsmanship, but he didn't stay long enough to get the Buddhist part, the compassion part, the sensitivity part, close that quote. In short, Steve Jobs did not practice what he believed a common struggle for all humans, of course, because of sin. But sin is not part of the Zen equation. Enlightenment is gained by turning inward, and when you do that, the Bible teaches, you find nothing but more darkness, not true enlightenment. That is why in the second part of the second perspective, I'd like to examine briefly what exactly is Zen Buddhism? Why did Steve Jobs find himself so attracted to this worldview called Zen Buddhism? Let me think with you briefly about that. The term Zen is actually, Z-E-N, a Japanese word a Japanese word for meditation. In Chinese, it's chun. 
It's a form of religion that developed out of and in reaction to Buddhism. It originated in India. Zen Buddhism then rose to prominence in China, but now flourishes in Japan. As you might expect, it is very difficult to arrive at a clear understanding of all that Zen Buddhism teaches. Each Zen leader has his own applications. Nonetheless, there are a few tenets that seem to apply to all Zen masters. Let me try to summarize those. Perhaps this is what drew Steve Jobs to Zen Buddhism. First of all, Zen argues the Buddha nature is in all men, so that all can become Buddhas, which means enlightened one, and the Buddha mind is everywhere. Anything can occasion its realization that you are a Buddha at any time. Enlightenment, and Zen uses a word, it's a Japanese word, satori, that can be attained in ordinary living, through ordinary circumstances, and through ordinary situations. Satori, S-A-T-O-R-I, sudden illumination, can occur at any point in life. Second, According to one writer, Satori involves a return to one's original nature, to one's original relations with the world of nature. This Satori is not normally attained by means of religious asceticism, religious self-denial, which is very common to traditional Buddhism, and it's not conceptual in nature. In fact, concepts and ideas are not what motivates the Zen Buddhists. Instead, it's characterized by the absence of conceptions, the absence of thought. Thirdly, and this is very distinctive, and I think this is what drew Steve Jobs to Zen Buddhism. The power of Zen is released in the koan, K-O-A-N, a problem that your master gives you to baffle your ordinary intellectual apprehension forcing a new orientation, a new awareness. The koan, K-O-A-N, poses a dilemma capable of arresting the mind, of calling up analogies, but the point is to pass beyond this symbolic formulation, to move through the problem, through the koan, emerging on the other side with a unity of mind and spirit, something you've never possessed before. When a koan is solved, typically... A flash of enlightenment comes. With greater periods of enlightenment, one eventually becomes a Buddha in this very body. Fourthly, for the Zen Buddhist, meditation, they call it Zazen, Z-A-Z-E-N, incorporates yoga-like techniques to promote the atmosphere of inner peace allowing the individual to conserve his psychic energy for the sake of concentrating attention more effectively in the struggle with his problem, his koan. The simplicity of Zen finally is reflected in architecture and in painting that you see all over Japan, and especially in China as well. This is what influenced Steve Jobs as well. And you see it in the architecture, in the lines, in the designs of Apple, not only in its products, but even in its corporate headquarters. Zen Buddhism 
had a profound influence in the thinking and in the lifestyle of CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs. Let me focus thirdly in this second perspective on how do we reach a Zen Buddhist with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What can we say? What can we do? How can we possibly reach someone like Steve Jobs, who was so influenced by Zen Buddhism? The ultimate reason for seeking an intelligent understanding of Zen is to find bridges that we can build. Let me suggest a series of bridges, uh, five in total, that will at least help you and me as Christians to be able to communicate with and perhaps be used by God to bring a Zen Buddhist to faith in Christ. First and foremost, bridge number one, consistency in what we believe is crucial. Our doctrinal convictions as Christians must be matched by the reality of the Christ-like life. Because Zen Buddhism is fundamentally an ethical faith with no real emphasis on the supernatural, the authentic life of Christ can speak volumes to the Zen Buddhist. Authenticity will get the Zen Buddhist's attention. That is what Steve Jobs was seeking and what he failed to attain. Bridge number two is the whole matter of suffering. For the Zen Buddhist, suffering encompasses all of life from birth to death. But clinging to the pleasures of life is considered foolishness and even vain. The Christian worldview harmonizes with Zen Buddhism on this point. Christianity recognizes the reality of suffering and ties it to the consequence of human sin. For that reason, the book of Ecclesiastes may be the best starting point for it declares the futility of all life under the sun, a favorite phrase of Solomon in that book. This book of Ecclesiastes points out that life is unfair, that it is futile, that it is confusing, that it is transitory. It is only belief in a sovereign, personal God that brings sense to all of this, declares the book of Ecclesiastes. For that reason, life is seen for the Christian as a good gift from a good God who ultimately makes sense even out of suffering. The Zen Buddhist doesn't have that kind of certainty. Perhaps books like Philip Yancey's Where is God When It Hurts or C.S. Lewis's classic The Problem of Pain, both of which deal with suffering can be a help to the Buddhist. Bridge number three. When the Zen Buddhist asks the question, what is life all about, he turns inward and answers it from what he finds within as he tries to solve the koan, K-O-A-N, that problem that his master gives to him. He turns inward. When the Christian asks the same question, what is life all about, he turns outward and upward, and finds God for the answer. For that reason, the Zen Buddhist will focus on so much on inward issues. Zen Buddhist dwells on and masters self, really in an effort to eradicate self. 
The haunting question for the Zen Buddhist is, how does one achieve satori, enlightenment through occupation with self? It is a paradox. Jesus gave the solution to the paradox of the Zen Buddhist. Quote, he who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 10, 39, Mark 8, 35, and Luke 9, 24. We find our true identity by losing ourselves in the one who created us, namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bridge number four. Zen Buddhism claims that all humans should be treated well, but why? There is no absolute standard in Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhists practice respect and dignity for all life to gain personal peace, to live in harmony with the world. But perhaps a person could do that easily by doing evil, to get ahead and to attain personal peace. Why is that wrong? Well, you must press the Zen Buddhists with questions like, what is goodness and how do we know what is good? Moral law, the moral law of this universe, points to a moral lawgiver, namely the true living God. The Zen Buddhists, as do all Buddhists, have no basis for the moral and value judgments. Bridge number five. For the Zen Buddhist, ultimate reality is really within the human self. Self is the ultimate. But for the Christian, ultimate reality is in the absolute truth of a God who is outside of man, and man knows the truth, that truth, that clear truth through the revelation of God. For the Zen Buddhist, reality is thoroughly subjective and inner. For the Christian, it's objective and God-centered. Ultimate reality is knowable only through Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is ultimately the choice the Zen Buddhist must make. Is it self or is it Christ? Reaching a Zen Buddhist such as Steve Jobs with the gospel of Jesus Christ is difficult and problematic. Unless something happened to Steve Jobs, in the last days of his life, he died a Zen Buddhist. These suggested bridges can be used by the Holy Spirit to pierce the heart of a Zen Buddhist. Fundamentally, both the Zen Buddhist and the Christian focus on the metaphor of light as being a path to truth. As the Zen Buddhist journeys into himself or herself, and as he or she learns to negate himself more and more, he's thereby enlightened. At least that's what they teach. The Christian journeys into Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. To find Jesus is to find true enlightenment, true satori. That is the message we must take to the Zen Buddhist. Enlightenment, satori is not attained through turning inward. It is attained for t from turning outward and obviously upward to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in that and in him and in all that he represents is true satori, true enlightenment. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.